Taishan. Mado, Georgie, Michelle, Charla, Michelle, Elisha, Michael, Priya, Andrea, Tracy. Wow. <laughs> Good morning, everyone, and welcome. Happy to see a new face. Happy to see a face we haven't seen in a while. And then there's the rest of you. <laughs> nice to see so many familiar faces. Um, especially on what is proving to be a rather exciting morning. Can't wait for outdoor walking meditation. When I was a graduate student, uh, a senior scholar of ancient philosophy came to give a talk where I was, a talk on an ancient school of skepticism. And this particular school practiced an ability that allowed them to suspend judgment on any philosophical question. So if someone came up to them and said, what do you say about change or beauty or the one? They would often respond, well, you could say this. Could also say not that for all these reasons. You could say this third thing too. But ultimately, who's to say? We might as well just suspend judgment on the matter. Go about our daily lives. And as a result, the people who were part of the school didn't have a whole lot of answers to traditional philosophical questions. But they still wrote a lot, a lot, a lot. Um, and the title of this scholar's talk was What to Write When You Have Nothing to Say. And this title has been on my mind for the last few months because there's been something present in practice for me that I want to explore this morning. If you've been around for a little while and you've been paying attention, you may have heard me say things like, there's just too much talking going on. And the world is a rather noisy place, isn't it? And when I last gave a talk, towards the end, I said something along the lines of, you don't really have to understand the Dharma talk. You don't have to get it. You can just be present when it's happening. You can receive what it is that's being offered, and then you can let it go and forget all about it. Move on to the next activity. Having tea and sweets, for example. Indeed, some Dharma centers don't have a question and answer period or a discussion period following their talks, and I think that's an interesting decision. The fact of the matter is that lately I feel very little motivation to talk about the teachings, at least most of the time. I would prefer to spend this hour on Sundays sitting zazen, seated meditation, and when appropriate, getting up and walking in Kinhin, walking meditation. Especially on a day like today, a very interesting day as far as the weather goes. 
sitting in a dim room with thunder and rain. It's rather enjoyable. And doing that, at any rate, seems more worthwhile to me than anything I might say during a talk. And at the very least, I wouldn't be offering your minds more toys to play with, ways of keeping them entertained. But I cannot dodge the responsibility that I have to say something, especially when I sit in this seat. Even if I would prefer to sit in silence, letting the self settle itself on the self, as we sometimes say, it's an important part of my practice that I do say things from time to time. So I decided to title this talk, What to Say When I Want to Say Nothing. I was comforted when I gave myself permission to start exploring this feeling that's been present for a few months to learn that it's not unusual and it might even be a common feeling among people who find themselves in something like this position. For example, Suzuki Roshi, founder of the San Francisco Zen Center, says the following in a talk. Wherever I go, people ask me, what is Buddhism? With their notebooks ready to write down my answer. And you can imagine how I feel. But here we just practice Zazen. That is all we do. And we are happy in this practice. For us, there is no need to understand what Zen is. We are practicing Zazen. So there is no need for us to know what Zen is intellectually. This is, I think, very unusual for American society. Some weeks ago, we had uh, a handful of people part of the Southern Tier Sangha that practice at the Olean Meditation Center in New York come down for a full day retreat. This is the Sangha that Ronin practices with. And for those of you that were around during Ongo, it's Rich Riley's Sangha. So Rich and Ronin and some other people were here for a day of practice. And after they arrived, we walked the meditation trail, gathered together in a circle, and Roshi shared our plan for the day and invited suggestions and comments. This gentleman named Albert, big fellow, great smile, big laugh, immediately pipes up, yes, whenever you do something unusual or special or whatever, if you could explain why you're doing it, that would be really helpful. Okay, we can do that. And we did a little bit, not about everything, but about many things. We offered an explanation for why it is we're doing what we're doing. And last week, Roshi shared a story that I think is becoming a favorite for some of us of Coben being at a gathering and someone meeting Coben and being like, hey, can you tell me what Buddhism is in a nutshell? I really want to know. And Coben says, sure, but hold on. I have to go to the bathroom. 
Coven goes to the bathroom and climbs out a window. It's never returning to the party, right? So I imagine that what I feel is something similar to what Suzuki might have felt, what Coven might have felt. Do we really need to talk about Zen so much? Maybe. There's a Japanese phrase that I learned from Coben's writings that I want to share with you this morning. Sanchi Manpo. Sanchi Manpo. Sanchi means entering into the space of the teacher. And this is what we do when we meet with Roshi for Dokusan. We're not meeting at a coffee shop or a public place to chit-chat and hang out, discuss the recent goings-on, but we're entering into the private, intimate space of the teacher, and when we do this, we co-create a Buddha field with the teacher. We enter a space where we can, if we so choose, let go of our post-it notes, all the ways in which we categorize ourselves. Coworker to so-and-so, employee of such a company, friend, mother, father, cat dad, used bookstore employee, Zen practitioner, and just sit in our bare existence, in our Buddha nature. This is Sanchi. Manpo, the other half of the phrase, means to listen to the Dharma. To listen to the Dharma. This is what happens in Dokusan, in the Buddha field that co-arises between you and the teacher. You share how things are for you in your practice. How are the precepts showing up in your life? Do they shine brightly everywhere you look? Or are they dim and difficult to see? What about sitting? How is your posture? How is your breathing? Are there recurrent stories coming up when you put yourself on the cushion and face the wall that are worth exploring? And what about your studies? Are you reading some sutra author or ancestor that's maybe challenging you and you'd like to explore that? Or that's encouraging you and that's something that's worth celebrating? Within this field, you share your understanding of the Dharma with the teacher. And the teacher shares their understanding in turn. And each of you freely gives in this collaborative, exploratory conversation about practice. So this is Sanchi Manpo in what you might call the technical sense. This is what the word or the phrase means. More generally, though, Sanchi Manpo is available in every moment of our lives. Whether sitting zazen in the zendo, as we do on Sundays together, chopping vegetables in the kitchen, 
planting herbs in your garden, cleaning your litter box, walking your dog. Every moment is an opportunity to enter into the space of the teacher and listen to the teachings. And this is so, it seems to me, because really, it's up to you in the end. No one else can sit zazen for you. No one else can study for you. No one else can be present in this moment for you. Only you can do these things, and when you do, you're able to study what we might call the real Buddhism. Dogen writes, and we've said it many times, to study Buddhism is to study the self. This thing right here. And another ancestor encourages us, if we want to know the undying person in the grass roof hut, to not separate ourselves from this skin bag right here and now. No one else can do this but you. And when you practice, when you embody fully whatever activity you are engaged in in that moment, you start to realize that you are what's being taught. You are kind and compassionate. You're an informed being, but you're empty of any permanent self. And you know who and what you are. And to learn how you are, says Coburn, is the most direct teacher. You don't need me for that. At the beginning of the talk, I mentioned that I want to avoid giving your minds more toys to play with. I started thinking after I wrote that, that that was really just a projection. I want to avoid giving my mind more toys to play with. So I also don't want to give your minds toys to play with, but really it's about me. Because I know a lot about the way in which the mind can be kept busy, some would say too busy, by this or that thing. And these days I have the gift of being able to see just a little bit that that sort of activity that dominated so much of my adult life fed a desire for control. And control isn't quite in the spirit of our practice, especially here at Oan. We don't say boo control, but we have a little bit of a different take on things. So I like boxes. I like boxes with clearly defined boundaries. Because then I can put things into boxes, right? And when I put things into boxes, I know what they are. No in quotes. I don't really know what they are, but I think I do. And I've convinced myself that I'm right about the box that I put the thing into. And when I do this, I rejoice because the boxes I create and the things that I put into them offer structure. It's a way of organizing things in this topsy-turvy world. 
And this helps me feel in control of what's happening around me. I can make sense of the events of my daily life, and I can make sense of what's happening in me, because I have boxes to put things into. And there's nothing wrong with that, in principle. It's plenty useful and practical, and please don't stop doing it. I was thinking about somebody ceasing the practice of putting things in boxes and like running red lights or stop signs all of a sudden because they're like, I don't know what that sign is and what it says. Don't do this. That would be very bad. But I find it just as useful to continually remind myself that the boxes I put things in are constantly changing in size. The boundaries are at best fuzzy. They're not fixed. Not even for a moment, it seems. As soon as I put something into a box, it seems like it doesn't fit as well as I thought it did. The dimensions have changed. And it's almost as though the word is that we use so commonly, such and such is so and so, doesn't quite fit in our language, in our world. Because it implies a certain permanence and stability to things around us that's not really present. Maybe I can only ever say that so-and-so was such and such a way, because as soon as I've said such and such a thing is this way it's changed. And all this so far just about boxes applies equally well to the things that I want to put into the boxes too. Everything's changing constantly. It's part of the spirit of our practice, however, that we emphasize confidence, trust, or faith in our original nature. A ceaseless, limitless trust, to use a favorite expression of Coben's. And an unshakable confidence in the teachings born from our lived experience. Dogen writes in a talk titled, A Talk About Pursuing the Truth, that the realm of all Buddhas cannot be reached by the intellect. You're not going to get there through this thing alone, carving up and categorizing the world but only those who have the great capacity of genuine trust can enter this realm. Seems to be a high bar, the great capacity of genuine trust. I thought it was when I first heard it and I recoiled at the expression. I thought, I don't have that. I can see today, though, that the great capacity for trust is within me and within each of you right now. And it's genuinely actualized without any attempt. Just as fish swim like fish and birds fly like birds, you actualize this great capacity for trust when you show up here on Sundays. And you sit folding your legs into a pretzel or using a bench and you sit in silence and you face the wall 
coming home and stopping, even if only for a few hours. In doing that, you express confidence in yourself and the teachings. This way of being in the world that's at the heart of our practice, of being in relation to the world, is a little bit different from the messages that we usually receive. So I work at a used bookstore these days, and we have a self-help section in the used bookstore. And it's two whole shelves. It's like, you know, longer than this. Both shelves are taller than me. And so I went to look at all of the books on these shelves the other day when I was at work. And I noticed that so many of these books on these shelves have the following words in their titles. Control others around you and get what you want. (laughs) Manage your emotions and be at peace. Hack the stock market and get rich. Strategize to win friends and influence people. Overcome your limitations and achieve every goal. I'm being a little dramatic, but I can because I'm in this seat today. Words that suggest a sort of adversarial relationship between all the things that are part of your life and even between you and yourself. I didn't see one that used the words confidence, trust, or faith. To be fair, I didn't take every book off the shelf and look at the subtitle, but I just looked at what was on the binding. Not one. I also looked quickly, so I might have missed one. But for those words, I had to go to the section on Christianity. There, every book had these words in their titles. But there it was confidence, trust, or faith in God. Not necessarily in you. And coupled with the message that you can do this. Dogen writes a little bit later in the same talk that our way is to sit zazen wholeheartedly, conform to the Buddha form, and let go of all things. Then, leaping beyond the boundary of delusion and enlightenment, free from the paths of ordinary and sacred, unconstrained by ordinary thinking, Immediately you wander at ease, enriched by great enlightenment. Maybe I need to say things to encourage you in this direction, away from hacking the stock market and towards more zazen. I don't know. Maybe. I am confident, however, that speaking from this seat is helpful for at least least this reason. So here's Dogen again. When the Dharma does not fill your whole body and mind, you may assume it is already sufficient. But when Dharma fills your body and mind, you understand that something is missing. 
for example. When you sail out in a boat to the middle of the ocean, where no land is in sight, and view the four directions, the ocean looks round and does not look any other way. But the ocean is neither round nor square. Its features are infinite in variety. It is like a palace. It is like a jewel. It only looks circular as far as you can see at that time. All things are like this. Although there are many features in the dusty world and the world beyond conditions, you see and understand only what your eye of practice can reach. In order to learn the nature of myriad things, you must know that although they may look round or square, the other features of oceans and mountains are infinite in variety. Whole worlds are there. It is not only around you, but also directly beneath your feet or in a drop of water. Sometimes we talk about the shoes that we walk in. The shoes that other people walk in. And at times we're encouraged to walk in another person's shoes. Shoes, of course, being a metaphor for our perspective or orientation towards a situation or life as a whole. I think it's a fitting metaphor for how we view things is determined in part by where we are, our physical location. And where is that but where our feet or where our shoes are? For Dogen, it's not shoes but a boat. And a boat has some advantages over shoes. A boat, at least here anyways, is in the water. It's in the ocean. Something constantly moving and changing, with the result that the boat's position itself is constantly changing. The boat's relation to the shore, to the clouds, to other boats, is never the same from moment to moment. Sometimes these changes are imperceptible. A lot of times, perhaps. Other times they are great, even unsettling. And that's how our life is. Never the same, always changing, but perhaps throughout our life, many of the changes are imperceptible. Our lives, you might say, don't seem to change much from day to day. But in fact, they're changing a great deal all the time. The other thing that stands out to me about this passage is that I am always and I can only ever be in my own boat. I can't be in Georgie's boat. I can't be in Mado's boat. I can't be in Andrea's boat. I mentioned to go that expression, put yourself in somebody else's shoes. Walk a mile in somebody else's shoes. I hate this expression. 
I think when I first heard it as a kid, I didn't like it because I had really great shoes. And I didn't want to be in somebody else's shoes. You remember those shoes that used to light up when you walked? Yeah, I had those shoes, and they had Mario on them, and I wanted to wear my light-up Mario shoes. Now I have a very sophisticated reason for why I don't like this, but it really just goes back to my Mario shoes. It seems to me that I can see things only as I see them, from where I am and who I am at that moment. And importantly, this includes everything from the past that has brought me into this moment right here and right now. I can't see things as Michael sees them, not just because we're sitting in different spots, but because I'm not a product of the whole collection of causes and conditions that have brought Michael into that seat right there, right now. Of course, Michael can share lots of things with me about his practice and about how it's going. But what he shares is going to be filtered through my own experiences, how I understand things, how my interactions with the world have shaped me. The lenses I wear have dust and dings and scratches and nicks that are particular to me because of how I've engaged with the world. I can never really see things as Michael sees them. It's one thing to hear about someone's experiences, and it's another to live them. I'm saying all this because it seems very important to me that for precisely this reason, that I can all and only ever be in my own boat, that I continue to talk about the teachings. Yes, I would prefer to sit zazen. I'd also prefer to take a nap with my cats. So that's not saying much. But when I share my understanding of the teachings with all of you, when I say how it seems to me from my perspective and what's alive for me, when I share that with you on Sundays and throughout the week, necessarily I meet with some response. Sometimes I meet with confusion. Sometimes I meet with disagreement. Sometimes I meet with silence. Sometimes I even meet with agreement. It seems to be rare, but it does happen. Though there's always something a little extra too. It's never just an outright yes. It's yes and this other thing. All of these responses that I receive are like waves or winds that move my boat, shift my perspective, sometimes a little, sometimes a lot, sometimes somewhere in between. I'm reminded that this perspective is had only by me and does not, indeed cannot, see the infinite features of mountains and rivers, nor the whole worlds that are in them and right underneath my feet. And such continual reminders, assuming that I remain open to what it is that others say, are great gifts. 
I spent a lot of my life thinking that my perspective was the only perspective. Glad I don't think that way anymore. So I suppose I will keep talking about Zen, even when I don't want to talk about Zen. Thank you.